Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Claire Sudbury, who is a lead engineer at MadeTech based in the UK. Claire Sudbury, welcome to Maintainable. Hello. So given your vast experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common traits of maintainable software? For me, the absolute most important thing is that people should be able to understand what they're reading. I know that Dan North quotes James Lewis, who are a couple of um, UK software consultants, and he talks about it being able to fit in your head. So I want to be able to look at any area of the code base and for to be able to see something that is small enough that it will fit in my head. I want to be able to read what's in front of me and understand it almost instantly without any extra help. I mean, that's, that's actually a big ask. But if I can do that, then I've got maintainable software. Great. And... You know, when there's software projects that have like, say, frameworks or there's a lot of files kind of scattered around, is it more that you kind of understand how, say, a certain piece of functionality kind of fits together within the system or just kind of like when you're just looking at code, kind of knowing, all right, I don't know what, how I found my way, stumbled my way into this line of, or file of, with code in it, but when I read it, I understand it. Or is it more from like, is there some some part that starts off that process? Like, oh, we want to make a change to X. So I'm going to go figure out how that currently works. Yeah. So I guess if I'm looking at a a code file, then I want that to be broken up into methods that are small enough to fit in my head. I want there to be components. Ideally, I want to be able to draw a diagram of all the components of the system in a way that will fit in my head. So I want to be able to drill down from an overview of the system to any element of the system. And at each point, it should fit in my head. So I should be able to see an overview of the system, whether that's because somebody has drawn diagrams or because there is some view of the system that shows me the components. And then I want to be able to drill down. So at a code level, I want every method to be probably calling out to other methods, but in a way that I can look at any level and and it fits in my head and I can understand what that bit is doing and where to go if I want to see more detail or, or, or more complexity. So, you know, at the code level, that means that I want my methods to be well named. I want my variables to be well named. Ideally, I don't want to see any comments. Sometimes there are you know, rare exceptions, but mostly I don't want to see comments because they will go out of date. I want the code itself to describe what it does without any extra things needed. But the other thing that will help me with that is if it's well tested and if the tests document the system. So I want to, actually my starting point, if I'm looking, funnily enough, I've been doing that this week, brand new code base, never seen it before, no idea how it works. And the very first thing that I did was open up a test and hope that that would document the system and tell me how the system was supposed to work. And it kind of did. (laughs) You know, and I want to be able to see a suite of tests that's well organized so that, again, you know, a set of tests give me a a kind of an overview of what they're testing. And then an individual test will tell me what an individual piece of functionality is supposed to do. 
I mean, this is all this is all pie in the sky. This is ideal world, and we live in the real world. And of course, you know, there are always issues, and it's very difficult to to design a piece of software that's really that easy to understand. But that's what we're aiming for. So a big part of that is that you're, as a developer, able to get a good mental model of the existing system and how things kind of fit together. So it's a challenging thing. Do you find that it's easier to do that when you're joining an existing project where you can focus more on the code? Or do you find that there's a need for some social solutions that require you interacting with other people that may have been working on that software for a period of time to also help build that mental model. Yeah. So actually, this piece of software I was looking at this week, I didn't have access to any of the developers. And ideally, I would have had one of them sitting next to me talking me through it. And I would always rather have a person that I can ask questions of in the here and now. It's great, you know, a really good code base. You should just be able to understand it without the aid of an extra person. But having a person with you who was involved, who knows the code base is going to speed things up. You know, having somebody that you can ask questions and ideally having somebody who can draw you a diagram. And diagrams are great, but the, the best diagram is one that is being drawn in front of you by a person who's explaining it as they go, rather than a static thing that somebody drew previously, because chances are it'd be out of date already anyway. I think that's a good point. I wonder how often teams are using those early on in the process. And then I don't know that everybody thinks like, oh, we got to go update that one diagram again. It's probably a little bit off. I love diagrams, but I'm not actually a big fan of storing them. They're better when they're live. Do you use the, the metaphor technical debt at all in your in your profession, or is that something that you? Yeah, absolutely, and 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 it's unavoidable. I think that in a way, the things that you desire of your software almost always move faster than the things you can make, which means that there's going to be something you've done that isn't quite how you want it to be. And you, ideally, you make everything perfect all the time. But, you know, even if you did that, something else will have happened since you wrote it. That means that it's now not quite fit for purpose. And there you go. You've got tech debt. So, you know, if there's an area of your code base that isn't quite how you want it to be or is problematic in some way that you know you want to revisit, but you can't do it quite now this minute, then there you go. You've got tech debt. What do you think developers, when they're speaking amongst themselves or potentially even with stakeholders tend to get wrong when they're the approach to talking about technical debt? I, I think it's actually really tricky. I think it's very easy to be critical, but anybody who's been there will know that it does happen. So what I'm going to say is that it's not great when you have tech debt that everybody knows about, but nobody's ever going to address that you keep saying tomorrow, mañana, we'll get round to it. That's not great. You know, that that's problematic. But it's also really hard to avoid. So, you know, ideally, you want to be getting to it as soon as possible. It needs to be part of your daily work. You know, in the same, in, in the same, basically refactoring should be part of your daily work. Every time you write code, you should also be refactoring. And every time you hit a bit of the code base that you don't like, just make a small change, make it a little bit better. Leave the code better than when you found it. And then you're addressing technical debt. But inevitably, there will be stuff that gets delayed and you don't get around to fixing it. And, you know, actually, sometimes you have to say that we're never going to fix that and just don't even have it on the list. You know, just be honest and say it's not a priority. 
One of the, I think one of the mistakes that people make is, and I certainly do, is there will be bits of a code base that I personally don't like. They offend me, you know, they, they make my eyes hurt and I don't like looking at them. And as soon as I see them, I think, oh, oh, it would be really satisfying to make that better. But what I don't do is ask the question, how often is this code even hit? Is this the first time I've seen this code for a year? Is this, is this the first time anybody's seen this code for a year? And is it going to be the last time anybody sees it for another year? Because if that's the, I mean, you know, it might be years, it might be months, whatever. But if hardly anybody ever looks at it, then the fact that it's painful and horrible, actually, it's probably not a priority. So, you know, you have to be able to prioritize what really matters, what's really impacting on our ability to deliver good software and to deliver a good user experience. Will it deliver significant value if we attack this bit of tech de debt or refactor this bit of code? And if the answer is no, then, well, you might have other priorities, which is painful and hard, but that's life. I'm curious about when you have those scenarios where you identify, say, an area of code that you disagree with or have a visceral reaction to or make just call it back code or code that you wrote like four years ago and you're you're like you're you cringe at it but what strategies have you seen work well for teams on how to get those prioritized or is this something that you, you mentioned like you, you spoke about refactoring should be part of your day-to-day -day work anyhow okay we need to refactor this big aspect of the code base not today how, how have you seen if that be effectively addressed at some point? Is it putting it as an item in a backlog or is it just wait until enough people complain about it that hope that someone at someday will decide that it's time to do that? Or if it's not on a backlog, is it just something that comes up in social conversations as amongst your, your peers as a, on a team of whether or not, oh yeah, we're aware of that. We've decided we're not going to do anything about that right now. How do, how do you envision being effective with that? A strategy that I've seen work really well is that the team has a weekly half hour or hour set aside hour, I think, called tech time. And during the week, whenever you, or, you know, just whenever you come across something that, that you think this is something that's problematic and we want to address it, then it goes on a tech debt poster on the wall. So what we've had is just a, a big sheet of A1 paper. And you put post-its on it, you, you you stick the thing that you don't like on a post-it, you put it on the tech debt thing. And the tech debt poster is already split into quadrants. So where you have two axes that cross in the middle and one of them it represents effort and one of them represents value. So the effort line axis will have most effort at the top and least effort at the bottom. And the value line will have most high value and low va high value at one end, low value at the other end. And because they cross in the middle, that divides the paper into quadrants. And one of those quadrants will be the things that are low effort and high value. And one of those quadrants will be the things that are high effort and low value. And, you know, you have an agreement amongst yourselves of how you define value, but the things that are high effort, low value, chances are you're never going to address them. But the things that are low effort and high value, you want to prioritize those. And that doesn't mean you don't do the other things, but if you have this weekly tech time, then you can use that to part of that time, not all of it, because that could be a bit tedious. Some of that time should be spent, you know, talking about something that's interesting, learning something with the team. But some of that time can be spent 
reprioritizing. So you go, you have a look at your quadrants, you have a look at your post-its, you say, do we still agree that these things are high value, low effort? Shall we pull some of those into the sprint? If you, depending on whether you're doing weekly sprints or fortnightly sprints, that might uh, affect when you do this exercise. But ideally, you want to pull some of those things into every sprint. If you're doing sprints, if, if it's Kanban, just, you know, pull them onto the board or whatever. But you, you want to say we're going to pull some of those things on. And some of the things from the other two quadrants will probably come in too, because otherwise they're never going to get done. But, you know, if you prioritize the things that are low effort and high value, then those are the quick wins, basically. And it's, it's a good thing to pull those into the sprint and to reassess how important they are and whether they're still an issue. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm visualizing that and thinking I feel like that's a really good suggestion for teams to consider. You know, like the idea of having that maybe not immediately just go into a ticketing system or Jira, wherever you're using, but actually like let's put this up in a space that we can talk about. And maybe it doesn't belong in the backlog. Cause I've I've my team, we work on other people's software quite a bit. And we might find stuff and then you know there'll be a conversation with the other team or our client's team, and they'll be like, Oh yeah, we discussed it a couple of years ago. Uh, so we decided we weren't going to deal with it right now. It wasn't like a high enough priority or what have you. But the developers that are coming in have no access to all those kind of conversations until they ask about it. Like, what's going on? Can you tell me the story about this area? And if if there is something visual that you can say, oh, it's up on the board already or, or go add it. Yeah, exactly. And everybody can see it. Anybody can add to it. It's really quick to do. But it also means that it isn't automatically going into the backlog because otherwise you just end up with a bloated backlog. One of my favorite, there's a group in Manchester called XP Manchester. And a few years ago, we had some lightning talks. And one of my favorite ever lightning talks was a a local developer called Gemma Cameron, who works for the co-op in Manchester. Actually, she wasn't working for the co-op then, but she does now. Uh, And she said the uh, company she was working for, the team that she was leading, she got up one day and she said, uh, and and I think they must have been, they were physical tickets somehow. I think maybe they were on a physical board, but anyway, they were somehow on paper or card and she screwed the whole lot up and threw them in the bin. It was the talk was the day I threw my backlog into the bin and she just threw all of it in the bin. She said, if it really matters, then then we'll care about it and it will reassert itself. But at the moment, there's just all of this stuff that nobody ever looks at and I'm just throwing all of it in the bin, <laughs> which is radical. But you know, when you just get this bloated backlog that nobody ever looks at, nobody, it's never, none of it's ever going to happen. And it becomes a kind of a millstone around your neck. I'm, I'm not suggesting you throw your backlog in the bin unless you want to, you know, whatever fit works for your team. But, you know, it's acknowledging that backlogs often are full of stuff that nobody's ever going to do. And I would imagine if you're working with a, you're, you have a product owner or that's involved in the project or other stakeholders that are not developers, those are probably rarely their priority. So it's like trying to advocate for an item in a backlog. Like, well, can we sneak in this thing in the next sprint? That could be maybe because then you're having to sell that as like a thing and show the value there, which could be a challenge for all developers. Not all developers are necessarily great at that. So, And the thing about having the post-its on the wall is they're not in the backlog. They're right there in front of you and they're only pulled in just in time. So on a weekly basis, you're pulling things into the sprint. You're saying we are going to do these this week or this fortnight and the rest of the time, but they are visible to you. They're, they're on the wall. And that I like that. And is that from like a your team's process? Is that something that something pops up you immediately throw it on the wall? Or do you just keep a stack of post-it notes on your desk or by your computer? And then on that specific time you show up with, here's the thing that I uncovered in the last week that I like to toss up on the board. That's a good question because I, I feel like I've seen both. 
And I, I'm pretty sure I've worked in a team where we just put them straight on the wall as soon as we thought of them. But also, I'd, sorry, I've worked on so many projects. Also, that idea of coming along with them in your hand and saying, because I've definitely been through that where we've said, right, these are the new ones that we've come up with this week. And now as a group, we're going to decide where they go. So I think maybe what we had was we had the quadrants, but as well as the quadrants, we just had a separate poster that was new stuff for this week. I think that's what we did. So it went on the wall, but it didn't go on the quadrants until tech time where we all agreed as a group whereabouts they would go on the quadrant yes that was it okay that that makes sense like the, some sort of like inbox for you to process together otherwise you might have people adding something and like who added this to yeah and what does it mean yeah yeah no we definitely did we talked through the new ones so that we could explain them to each other and so that they were visible to everybody because like you say otherwise nobody might ever know that they, they went up there yeah i'm gonna shift topics here and i'd like to to learn a little bit about, more about Made Tech, what types of services does your organization offer? Yeah, so we are a consultancy and we specialize in public sector work. So we're working with local government and national government and health services. And what we will tend to do is send teams of developers and user experts into a public IT department and we will help them to deliver software. And what we're doing is we're working in partnership with public agencies to learn from them and for them to learn from us to develop better software, ideally. So we're helping them with their processes. We're helping them to upskill their developers. We particularly care about things that you, you might call extreme programming practices. So we're particularly interested in continuous integration and continuous development, pair programming, test-driven development, and also in team culture. So, you know, building a high-performing team, what that takes, how you help how you help teams to trust one another, to communicate well with each other, to collaborate well with each other. So when we're recruiting, we, we're aiming to recruit polyglots, i.e. people who can program in more than one language and have worked in more than one technology. We're aiming for full stack developers. That doesn't mean that we expect people to be experts in everything, but we expect people to have experience of everything. Well, not everything. Nobody has experience of everything, but, you know, to have a broad range of experience. And then what we're doing is we're either looking for senior developers who have experience of working in agile, using agile processes and using techniques such as pair programming and test-driven development and also continuous integration. With more junior developers, we have our own internal academy. So what we do is we take um, not necessarily completely fresh graduates, but maybe people who've been in the industry for a year or two. We also take people who haven't worked in software before. So we take people from different backgrounds. We, we really want that cross-pollination. We don't assume people will have a degree. And then we have a 12-week academy where we teach them the basics and we give them time, you know, away from projects to learn things like test-driven development and clean architecture in a safe environment, but they're still getting paid. And then gradually we kind of expose them to, to project work where, as I say, we're in partnership with public sector. Nice. I think that's really great that you're doing that and investing in, you know, up-and-coming junior developers or you mentioned you might have a user experience type people as well there. Is that something that you bring in on a junior level as well? So we are, uh, historically, we've worked with partners who specialize. So we've worked with agencies who specialize in 
service design, user research, user experience, all of which we would put under the umbrella of user first. So we, as a company, we put a lot of focus on user experience. Historically, we've used partners for that expertise, but we're just beginning to bring some of that expertise in-house and recruit for that. Um, So that's a kind of a transition that we're making. I, I think we'll continue to work with partners for a long time. But we would also like to have some of that expertise in-house as well. I also work in a consulting capacity on a much smaller scale. But I know that that like selling design as a service and selling coding or development and solutions like technical solutions as a service, there's I can understand that there's a lot of uh, efficiencies that can be gained if you could have the designers and the developers kind of working under the same roof, so to speak, to help work through things that are beyond. Do you typically, when you're working with partners, have them help out kind of outline where the direction is going to go for the user experience. And then the development team kind of comes in behind that and and makes it a reality. And then it's kind of like the long-term maintenance of that work still needing to interact with user experience. We try to avoid the the idea of just having design up front and then waving bye-bye because that's too waterfally. So what, what we're aiming for is fast feedback. And this is why we care about continuous integration. We want to write code and deploy it to live as soon as possible. And then we can put it in front of users and we can find out whether we are actually fulfilling their needs. And they can too, because, you know, sometimes users tell you what they think they want, but they don't realize it's not actually what they want until they've got it in front of them. And then they realize, oh, actually, I thought I wanted this, but I want something slightly different. So you want to get your product in front of your users as quickly as possible. And then you want that to feed back into the development cycle. So you want to know what they think of it. You want to know, can they use it? How are they using it? Are they using it in the way that you envisage them using it? And then whatever the results of that research search are, bring that straight back into the development cycle as quickly as possible. And in order to achieve that, you need to have those user experts on your team, talking to your developers, interacting with them on a daily basis. So the way that we work with our partners is that we, between us, we put together teams that are partly made up of made tech employees and partly made up of our partners' employees. And then they are working together on a team to feed the user research straight back to the developers and, and have a dialogue. Our head of product, Andreas, who's our user-first expert, he gets very excited about the kind of user research where you actually, the Google Sprint idea, where you sit your users down in front of the, the code that you've just written and your developers are behind a screen watching them interact with what they've built. And he says, you'll get, you know, you'll get developers shouting at the user, but the user can't hear them saying, just press that button press that button and the user just can't work that out you know and that's when the developers find out that the thing that they thought was obvious is not so yeah that's that's really helpful so speaking of uh obviousness i know that in some of our previous conversations preparing for this one of the things you mentioned aside from like when you're looking at how you're evaluating your team's output say code or just the the quality of their output are there other things outside of making sure things like linters are being used and are writing tests as part of it. What other sorts of things, traits do you ask of the quality of the code or the, the, the type of code? And you touched on this a little bit earlier. I think when we talked about maintainability, that like things are clear to read, maybe they're somewhat obvious. Is there, other, is there anything else that you kind of look for from your team or expect from them? So I want to know that my code is well tested, but I'm personally not a fan and a lot of my colleagues are not fans of coverage metrics. 
So, you know, it is possible to uh, use various tooling to count how many lines of code are covered by your tests. But then the problem with uh, as soon as you start to measure something, then you're in danger of it becoming a target and then you don't think about why. So it's possible to write tests that cover every line of your code, but are still not fit for purpose. They're not actually testing the code in a way that's useful or, you know, that you're not intelligently thinking about how can I get the best value from these tests. So, yes, I want coverage, but I'm not a particular fan of counting lines. So I, I want to I want to have confidence that if something breaks, then my code won't deploy. So I want my code to be well tested and I want there to be a consequence of those tests failing. So I, I want those tests to be built into my pipeline. I don't want it to be possible to deploy my code if those tests are failing. I want there to be an incentive to fix the ones that are failing. And then that way, I'm more likely to know that my tests aren't brittle, for instance. So if I've got, you know, there's people often talk about the testing pyramid and then I slightly pedantically say, well, it's not a pyramid, it's a triangle because it's not 3D. Although it is possible to draw a 3D testing pyramid, but most people, when they draw what they're calling a pyramid, they're actually drawing a triangle anyway. But that's, that's just me being pedantic. But the testing pyramid, as people like to call it, it the idea is that the, the, the apex of the triangle is the small bit and those are the user tests. Those are the tests that are hitting the front end. And the reason for that is they tend to be slow because they're going end to end. And so you don't want to slow down your pipeline, but also they tend to be brittle because if you're not careful, it's very easy to have tests that say things like this should be blue or, you know, this should be at exactly this position on the screen. It really doesn't matter. And and as soon as a designer gets their hands on your um, UI and redesigns it, your tests fail. And that's like, that's not, that's not helpful. But if you say that you can't deploy this code unless the tests are passing, then you, that if, if your tests are slow and if your tests are brittle, that causes so much pain that that forces people to address that if you're saying that you can't be deployed if the tests are failing. So I want to see tests that are part of my pipeline that are giving me confidence that nothing has been broken and that are being constantly reviewed and reassessed for, for fitness and where people are confident to throw tests away if they're unhelpful, if they're out of date and to redesign the test suite and to re-examine whether the tests are actually documenting the code. I want I want to see all of that. I want to see everybody writing tests and everybody taking responsibility for tests. I don't want them to be in the hands of just some team members. I want everybody to have some responsibility for that. I want to see pairing. I want to be able to see people pairing together and be able to see that it's not just one person's hand on the keyboard. But I also want to feel confident that people in the team feel confident to say, I don't feel like pairing today or I'm tired. I need a break, you know. Those are all things that, to me, will give me confidence that, that we're, we're doing good things. Do you have, you know, you know, you mentioned like metrics for test coverage, but do you have a percentage of time that you're hoping your developers are spending time pair programming? No, because it's just going to vary. I could throw a number at you. I could say 80%. And I don't know, that's quite a good number. But I mean, actually, it's going to be, it's going to be depend on the people and what their preferences are. Some people find pairing more draining than others. 
Sometimes there will be times when the work that you're doing, it doesn't need pairing so much. Sometimes there'll be times, particularly if you're picking up a new piece of work that's new to the whole team, at that point, I would want to see more pairing because I would want everybody to be getting as as much sight on what's happening as possible. And you're also in a higher risk period at that point. So having two pairs of eyes on everything that happens is much better than only one because you're more likely to catch problems, but you're also sharing knowledge. So, but I mean, basically the answer is it depends. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Typical developer response there. So do you find yourself more often on team refactor or team rewrite? Oh, well, I'd like to say refactor rather than rewrite. I would prefer refactor to rewrite, but, you know, again, we live in the real world and quite often you will be just because of staff turnover, you'll find yourself or, or just because circumstances, you'll be picking up a piece of code that nobody's really looked at for a long time and your impulse will be rewrite. But actually, as a consultant, something that I find is that I'm quite often talking people out of rewrites so there is a real tendency, everybody loves the new and hates the old. And there's a real tendency, like the word legacy is a dirty word in this industry. And all legacy means is software that somebody else wrote a little while ago. That's that's what legacy software is. It's software that was written by somebody else, not now. That doesn't mean it has to be bad. And also, but there's a tendency to like, oh, that's legacy code. We don't like it. We want to replace it. So we want to rewrite it. And then you throw out the baby with the bathwater and then you're in danger of the big bang where you're saying we're going to like completely throw away the old and bring in something completely shiny and new. And you're going to cause a lot of upheaval trying to switch from one to the other. So I would prefer using things like the strangler pattern to gradually replace an old system with a new system or refactor an old system, improve an old system and recognize that there will be value in an old system. It will have knowledge and, and, and complexity in it that's built up over time and has intelligence behind it. And don't just assume that because it's old, it's bad. Yeah, the the legacy thing does. I feel like it does get thrown around a little too frequently in our industry as a bad thing. And I think you're, you're right that it's it's code that someone wrote a little while ago, or someone else wrote it. What, whatever the you know, you're thinking there is, or or it's maybe not the new shiny thing that you would prefer to be working on as a programmer. And I feel like there's sometimes a lot of bias in people, like whether they're aware of it or not. Just like a couple of guests that I've spoken with talked about how sometimes rewrites are kind of coming from a place of not wanting to jump into a messy situation because maybe they don't have enough experience doing that yet or confidence that they can like make make a messy thing less messy versus just creating a new messy thing and maybe a new technology that there haven't been a lot of established patterns yet to lean on. And so you can create tomorrow's mess, I guess, but... You know, when you speak to people who've been in the industry for a long time, you quite often hear people saying things like, you know what, this thing that everybody thinks is shiny and new, we did that 20 years ago. You know, and then it went out of favor and now it's back in again. But all these people have forgotten that we used to do it 20 years ago. And yeah, it, it's it, we're solving the same problems over and over again. And just because we're doing it with a new tool, it doesn't mean to say that it's better. We'll be back with our interview with Claire in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable. If you're finding these discussions valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on social media and a writing review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. 
Also, do you know someone in our industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Claire Suber. So for those that would be more curious to learn more about refactoring, because maybe there's people out there that just haven't really done much of it yet. Uh, maybe they've heard the word and they're like, is that just making changes to code? Or what advice could you offer them on how to begin refactoring, a, say, a challenging code base as a next step? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of Martin Fowler's refactoring book that he published a new edition of last year, 20 years after the original, I think. So he he updated it and published a new edition, but basically still the same principles intact. And my what I think is the number one principle is to make the smallest change possible. And when I say small, I mean tiny. You know, move a couple of lines of code around. That's it. Commit. You know, like so the the very quite often the very first thing you might do if you're looking at a piece of code you want to change is literally to rearrange the lines of code to group them sensibly. And that's it, that's a commit. And then run your tests and make sure you haven't broken anything. And then maybe rename a variable, commit, run your tests again. You know, like tiny, tiny changes. And every time you make a change, you commit the code and you run the tests. And that way. If you break anything, which you probably will at some point, you know when you broke it. And in order to find out what the change was that broke it, you only have a tiny change. There's only a tiny number of candidates of what might it have been that broke it because you're moving in in these tiny steps. And again, if if you've got test coverage and your tests are passing every time you make a change, that means you can go away and do something else for a while. So that means that it doesn't become a big, scary task. It's, it, it, it enables you to just make tiny refactorings every time you touch the code because every change you make is tiny and you're just improving it a tiny little bit. And then if you get hit by a bus or the, alar- the, the fire alarm goes off or it's the end of the day, everything's fine. You know, the temptation, and I certainly have done this in the past, is to say, oh, I don't like this. I think... This thing here should look like this. And I can see my start and my end. And I start creating the end in a way that breaks the start. So I take something and I pull it apart entirely so that I'm now in a state where I know what my desired state is, but I haven't reached it yet. And nothing builds, no tests are passing, it's a total mess. And now what? You know, now I get hit by a bus or, or the day ends and I have to go home or the fire alarm goes off and the, the code won't build, the code won't run. And typically, the bigger change you try to make in one go, the more likely it is that you, it's like unraveling a ball of string, you know, if you have, or a kite. So if you have kite string that's got really, really tangled, you think I'm just going to unravel this little bit, but this string connects to that string and that's, and now I've got to unravel that bit and that bit and that bit. And suddenly I'm six degrees removed, but I've made more mess and nothing is fixed. That happens a lot when you're, particularly if you have a code base that's not brilliantly structured. So there are, if it's tightly coupled, then you'll find that you pull at one string and that pulls at another method and another class and then another one. And then another component over there has to be changed. And, you know, suddenly all of these things need changing and nothing is building. So it's about isolating and identifying the smallest possible change that you can make and making it safely. So one of the principles, for instance, that's really useful is 
So this is this is a very simple one. If you're adding a parameter to a function and you're using a language, so you can't do this in all languages, but if you're using a language that allows default values, so you're saying my new parameter is going to be an integer and it's going to represent a count of something. I'm just going to call it count. I make it have a default value of zero, which means that everybody who's calling my function can still call my function. They're not, all of my clients are not going to break because otherwise, if I just add a new parameter, all of my clients now break because they're not, they don't have that argument when they're calling me. But if I give it a default value, then I can add the parameter and then one by one change the clients to use the, I have a new argument. And then finally, once I've done that, then I remove the default value. Another thing that you can do is you can have two versions of a function or two versions of a constructor, one that has your new parameters or new, your new way of things, but also keep the old one in place until all of your clients are using the new version and then get rid of the old one. And that's similar to when you're changing contracts on microservices or on APIs. You can have two versions of your contract and you use versioning so that people, so that your clients can upgrade when they're ready. They can continue using the old version. And then once everybody's using the new version, then you can get rid of the old version. But there are lots of techniques like that that allow you to make small changes and not break things while you're changing things. Some really good advice there. You see that the scenario where you start, you know, you talk about the kite string example there, but when you're working on a lot of changes in parallel in a big, in a big system, those, and maybe even you're working in your own branch, but when you, if it's too big of a project, I feel like those often sometimes get abandoned until a later time. Cause like, all right, I thought this was going to be a small thing. This is going to be way bigger, way more effort than we initially thought. And so that branch gets stored away for a later day, you're going to jump in. And then, you know, a month later, like, where, where was I? <laughs> this is why I wouldn't recommend using branches at all. You know, people talk about trunk-based development. Before I started at Made Tech, I worked at ThoughtWorks and there was a big conversation in ThoughtWorks. In fact, I think this conversation happened more than once in ThoughtWorks. But I remember once on our kind of internal tech channel, there was a big conversation about how people talk about trunk-based development, but really let's just call it what it is, which is continuous integration. Because, so the idea of trunk-based development is that you only have a master branch. You never have feature branches. You never have different developers working on different branches at the same time. Everybody is working on master. And that is continuous integration because that means that all of the code that you write is being committed to master and it's going live. It's going to prod. It's going through your pipeline. It's being deployed to live because everybody's working in master. And it's not easy. It requires discipline and it requires a lot of habits that your developers have to learn. And one of them is you only ever commit tiny, tiny changes. Yeah. And you, you know, every time you make a change, you make sure that your tests pass. You don't get to pull everything apart and have it sitting broken. It's a bit like saying that you don't get to be the kind of mechanic that pulls the whole engine apart and has it lying in pieces on the floor. You're not, you're just not allowed to do that. Yeah, you're only ever allowed to take one tiny little piece out, give it a bit of a clean and put it straight back in again. And it takes discipline. Then there are lots of there are lots of techniques you can use to enable it. So, for instance, you can use feature flags, which does allow you to work on something that you don't want the user to see. So they don't get to see it because it's turned off via a feature flag. So it's being committed to master. It's being deployed to live, but the users can't actually see it. You know, that's one way of dealing with having things that are in progress. So that, you know, there are ways of doing it, but 
the the reason, the big, big reason for it is that you avoid merges. And everybody who's ever worked with branches will know what I mean when I talk about merge hell. You know, and the longer lived a branch is, the more likely it is that there will be merge hell at some point. And when you have several long lived branches all existing in parallel, then that just, you know, massively increases the merge hell. And then you get competitions for who gets to push their branch to master first so that everybody has to merge with their code instead of the other way around. But if everybody's pushing to the same branch at the same time, then everybody has to have good discipline. But it, but it also means that everybody has confidence that they're not going to have Merge Hill and it massively decreases the risk of big changes causing problems. Interesting. And I, I love branches for from my perspective, but I, I see that I'm just trying to wrap my head around that idea of having everybody pushing things into master on a regular basis. And I get the idea of, you know, you have your test framework that's kind of protecting you I'm imagining there's some exceptions to that if you're trying to stage something ahead of time, or is that even just like, then the feature flag is just turned on in staging environment. Yeah, exactly. I see. Interesting. You know, you can use environment variables so that you can have environments where it's turned on and then environments where it's turned off. It speeds things up and it reduces risk. It takes discipline. It, you have to use techniques. So, so again, you, you use all of the things that I was talking about before that allow you to make small changes. So you use versioning. You sometimes have parallel, you know, in the same way that you might have feature flags that allow you to have parallel features that are on or off. It's this, the same thing as creating a new version of an old function until the, the old function is ready to die and then you turn it off. But it's that, that idea that you, you, that you can work safely with one another's changes. And it is possible. Uh, it takes discipline. But when you learn that, and it just takes techniques, you know, but when you learn them, you reap the benefits. So a couple of quick last questions. Um, I'm, I'm curious. One, let's say that there's, I hope, a few listeners to this episode. And maybe they've been at their company for a few years now. And they don't feel like they're concerned about the long-term maintainability of the code base is being heard by, say, upper management or stakeholders, whoever seems to be in charge of that. And maybe they've heard, not right now, maybe too many times, and are starting to feel like they maybe should stop advocating for it. What advice could you offer them on how to take some action, say, today? Yeah, so always I want to aim for when I'm trying to persuade people of the value of, of improvement, I guess, is that I want to try and demonstrate it. So one of the things that we often do as consultants, because you'll often find that you're you're working for a client that, that wants to change, but is scared of change or has senior stakeholders who have different ideas about what should happen than the people who are on the ground. And what I've often seen done in that situation is you just find a small thing that you can do. So maybe you might develop a small service or maybe you might set up a small side project that's, you know, just that's marked as innovation or or even something that you're doing in 10% time or, you know, some little side project that's done differently and is used as a way of demonstrating, look, there's this other way that we could do things. So, for instance, there are still plenty of companies out there that aren't you're doing continuous deployment and you have you know several stages to deployment where there's there's one team uh, and where everything is siloed so there's somebody doing 
front end and there's somebody doing back end and there's somebody doing testing and things are being thrown over the fence to the next person in the process. And then the test team throws it over another fence to the deployment team. And the deployment then there's a platform team and, and they barely even know the developers and don't trust the developers, you know. And so they're kind of protecting their little area. And quite understandably, because actually when things are split up like that, then they, they will see things getting broken and they'll get scared of, of that risk. So, and what uh, what I would say is my preference would be to have a multifunctional team where everybody's responsible for everything, where the team's doing their own DevOps, doing their own deployments, are in charge of their own releases, in charge of their own testing, they're talking to each other. But that's a big change for somebody who's used to doing it in a different way. And so what you do is you just do it It's for something very small. You say, look, we're going to develop this tiny little app here or just this, this little feature here, and we're going to set up our own deployment pipeline for this. And it's something really small, but we're going to demonstrate what can be achieved if we do things differently. And we're going to say, look, and, and pay attention to what the pain points are, write them down, note them down, find ways of describing them that are meaningful, find ways of drawing diagrams or demonstrating them and say to people, look, this thing here that's causing you pain, this is because we're doing it like this. But this thing here where I've done it differently, there's less pain. And that problem that we have when we do it the other way is being addressed. So it's show by example, basically. And it's not easy, but, but, you know, try and find a small example where you can do things differently and show the benefit. Kind of the, uh, the show don't tell type of approach there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You can talk about it till you're blue in the face, but, but if you can demonstrate it, there's real power in that. That's great. You know, I know that you have a lot of things going on as a, you know, in your profession, you put on a lot of workshops and things like that. What's on the horizon this year in 2020? Yeah. So, right. Let me see if I can remember it all correctly. On May the 15th, I'm going to be running a day-long workshop at SDD Conf in London. That's uh, Software Design and Delivery, I think is what the SDD stands for. That's actually a four or five day conference. Um, so there's workshops at the beginning and then there's like conference with talks and then there's workshops at the end. So I'm doing a day long workshop on Friday the 15th and that's going to be a refactoring workshop. Sorry, I didn't say what it was about. So that's going to be all about refactoring, spending a whole day doing refactoring and, you know, uh, talking about how to make small changes, make sure you're covered by tests, try and use a test driven uh, approach. And then I'm doing a talk in June, on the 16th of June, I think, uh, Women of Silicon Roundabout, also in London, about um, the insecurities that senior female technicians often have, about whether they're technical enough, whether they're proficient, whether they know what they're doing. It's about how, you, how to address those fears and insecurities and how to embrace the fact that nobody knows everything and you are never going to feel completely proficient because nobody is. How to embrace that and get over it. That's me and Karen Lee. We're doing that together. We're pairing on that. And then on June the 18th and 19th, I'm going to be in France at DevBreak, keynoting with a talk on like, let's stop making each other feel stupid. And that's going to be flying the flag and, and ranting a bit about, uh, I guess, what you might call intellectual elitism. And then I'm going to be in Barcelona in October. And we haven't act that's going to be at GSAS, which stands for Global Software Architecture Summit. And we haven't actually decided. I'm either going to be running a workshop or doing a talk. 
Have I got everything in there? I, I feel like there might be one missing. Oh, Agile on the Beach in Cornwall, which is not, it, it, the, the conference is near the beach. There will be a party on the beach in the midst of the conference. And I'm going to be talking about how to stop testing and break your code base. So that's a talk about why, why test-driven development actually helps you to uh, write better software. That's excellent. It sounds like you have a, a good busy schedule of uh, helping people kind of find some new approaches to things and how they're approaching their day to day work and how they're interacting with their, you know, their peers and their and thinking about their career. Where can people listening uh, learn more about you and your uh, these workshops and, and Maytech? Yeah, so I've got a Twitter account, which is my name, but you have to know how to spell it. So it's C-L-A-R-E-S-U-D-B-E-R-Y. It's Ryan Sudbury is spelled the same way as surgery. So uh, that helps. So that's my Twitter account. But also I have a Medium blog, which is called A Woman in Technology, and it's on Medium. And I've got an events page there where you can see all the things that I'm doing and have done. And I, I keep that up to date. And I would be doing my audience a disservice if I didn't also ask you this question. What non-software development related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry? Wow. Non-software development book recommending to people in the industry. Uh, Oh, well, actually, yes. So this is a fantastic book. There's a book called Delusions of Gender by Cordelia Fine, I think she's called. It's about all the bad science around the difference between male and female brains, how actually they're not, you know, that, so for instance, you know, that people say that they've, they've measured male and female brains and that there are bits of male brains that are bigger and then bits of female brains that are bigger. It's complete nonsense. There are tiny statistical differences, but they're in, they're much more complex than that. And they are overlaid by the other ways in which we're the same and different and also, if you flex certain muscles, they will grow. The same goes for the brain. So if you're encouraged to care about cars, then you're, I'm not saying there's a car bit in your brain, but you know, if you're encouraged to think about things and behave in certain ways, then those bits of your brain will grow because it is a muscle. But that doesn't mean that you were born that way. And men and women are nowhere near as different as, uh, as people would have us believe. And men can do anything that women can do. Women can do anything that men can do, apart from obvious things like having babies. <laughs> yeah, uh, that book, actually, I think I, I think I picked that book up maybe, it feels like it was a long time ago now, maybe 12 years ago, I think I, I think I got about halfway through it and, and it's sitting on my Kindle for me to resume at some point, but I was enjoying it for sure. So I'll definitely include a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, it's a it's a dipping in and out book. You know, I mean, it's a nonfiction book. It contains tons and tons and tons of really interesting information. It's not a novel, so you don't necessarily pick it up at the beginning and then read all the way through to the end. But it's it's got some great stuff in it. Well, excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Claire. Thanks so much for taking time to talk shop. Thank you for having me. 